All right, so we are in the book of Revelation chapter 19, just a couple warnings about the future, uh, not the type of warnings that come in the book of Revelation, just general warnings for us as a church. Uh, so I'm just a couple of weeks now from being done with this book. Uh, by next month, we'll be finished with uh, the book of Revelation. So we have this week and then three more weeks in Revelation. Uh, then I'm going to do the book of Jude. And so I've decided that when we start Jude, we're going to go back to a more normal setup up here. We've kind of left it like this because we still have more people watching online uh, than we have in person. Uh, so I will, I will actually, uh, I will mourn the loss of this setup. For me, this setup is great. Um, I don't have every eye on me. That's a nice thing. Uh, I get uh, three or four times during every sermon where I actually get a, a second to like breathe and think because I'll ask one of these guys a question. I'm not really listening to their answer. I'm thinking to myself, okay, um, what am I supposed to say next? Did I forget something? I'm able to get back on track. That's kind of nice. A normal sermon is just 45 minutes of nothing but words coming out of my mouth, and I never get a chance to actually turn my brain on. And I get home at the end of the day, and I'm like, what did I say today? I have no idea. I just talk, 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 talk. Kind of like now. Uh, uh, but just know that those things are coming up. We will be moving to Jude next, and then uh, we'll eventually get back to a, a more uh, a different setup. It's interesting, actually, as I've talked to people, younger people seem to like this setup better. Older people like the traditional me at the pulpit better. But everybody would like to see the whole worship team back. And so uh, that's what we really want to get back to. <laughs> and a few people would like me to stop asking them questions. <laughs> so that would be also helpful. Uh, it's really been awkward. I've been able to pick on Doug kind of and now with him not being up here the last couple of weeks. I feel bad picking on any of these people with my questions. And so I will be relieved to have Doug back <laughs> next Sunday to <laughs> just to pick on him a little bit. It's uh, helpful for me. All right, so we are in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. We're winding down to the end now. God is uh, bringing his final judgments on the earth. It's, it's an exciting time, uh, if not a, a somewhat uh, horrifying time if you're on the wrong side of those judgments. Uh, but when we get into chapter 19 today, let me just give you kind of four things that we'll cover here. First of all, uh, we're going to get the fourfold hallelujah. Uh, this is the, a celebration uh, that Babylon is gone. Uh, and then we will see the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, we're going to see Jesus and his army arriving. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then the overthrowing of the beast uh, and his army will be defeated. So uh, lots of cool stuff that we have to cover in here today. So I should probably get reading. Uh, as I read these first six verses, the question I want you guys to be thinking to, and it's a two-parter. Uh, the question is, you're going to hear this group in here. It's going to be the voice of a great multitude. Uh, I want you to see if in this passage you can identify who they are and what it is that they're rejoicing over. And I'm going to actually have Jim answer that. So if you can't come up with the answer, that's fine. Jim's going to be the only one put on the spot here. But uh, So verses 1 through 6, let me read these to you. Uh, After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, 
You who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And so, uh, again, we have this, really this worship service going on in heaven. There's going to be this celebration. Uh, it's why I've been saying throughout this book that the Revelation is unique in that it comes with its own soundtrack. It comes with its own playlist, right? It's just all throughout it. There's scenes in heaven where there's people um, worshiping. And uh, one of the cool things that Sheila has done with this is she's tried to find worship songs that came from the book of Revelation, and she put that together as a Spotify playlist so that she can kind of listen to those and kind of set her in the right mood. So if you get a hold of her, I'm sure she can find a way to send you that playlist if you want it. And then if you find other songs, you can add to that. If you don't know what Spotify is, that's okay too. But um, <laughs> she can just write down the names of the songs and you can find them, uh, see if you can find them in the, uh, the, the bargain bin at the, at the Christian bookstore. Um, anyway, uh, so it starts out, there's this voice of a great multitude in heaven and they're gonna bring out three of the four hallelujahs. There's gonna be another group that's gonna bring one of the hallelujahs. Uh, but that word hallelujah is really a cool word for those that don't know. Uh, hallelujah just means praise the Lord. Uh, what's unique about the use of the word hallelujah, that's not a Greek word. The Greek here, this whole book is written in Greek, but in this section, just for this one word, they translate, or they, they don't translate it, they actually put the Hebrew word hallelujah there. So it's praise the Lord. So anytime you hear somebody say hallelujah, you can translate that in your mind to praise the Lord. That's what they're saying. And so they're saying here, praise the Lord. But then my question was, who are the they that are saying, praise the Lord? Well, in verse 2, it says that they are his servants, that the blood was shed by her. But it seems like we've heard the, this before, and it's the believers in Christ. That would be us. So it is all of those people that have been in heaven. Yeah, you, and you can see that in this passage here. They're responding to this idea uh, that the bond servants have been put to death. But then later on in this same chapter in verse 6, uh, you have this section where at the end of verse 5, there's an instruction. Give praise to our God, all you his bond servants, you who fear him, the small and great. And then these are the ones who respond. The great multitude is the ones who respond. So apparently when it says there's a great multitude here, and of course you saw it earlier uh, in, in the book of Revelation as well. But this great multitude is all his bondservants, all you who fear him, the small and the great. If I could put it this way, this is us. Like this is a great opportunity for us to get a glimpse of what we're going to see in heaven. This is actually telling us what our lines are in advance. So we're not messing it up when we get to heaven, right? Like we're going to know what to say because we've already studied the book of Revelation. And when it's that right moment and we see Babylon fall, we talked about Babylon last couple of weeks, how Babylon is representative of either a city or a some sort of religious economic uh, system that has brought immor immorality to the earth, uh, that has uh, been murdering the servants of God. We have this moment after the death of Babylon, the overthrow of Babylon, this moment of praise in heaven, and they begin to sing these hallelujahs. And so uh, what then were the reasons for the hallelujahs? That's because God is true and righteous in his judgment. And he judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth. Yeah, this, this great moment where we're seeing this judgment. 
Uh, so a couple of things about that. First of all, for your Bible study purposes, as you're studying the Bible, there are some key words that you really need to know. Uh, the word because and the word for, and sometimes the word and, are extremely powerful when you're studying the Bible. Uh, oftentimes, you want to know what the Bible says, but what it means, right? You want to know what does it mean when it says this, or what does it mean when it says that? And usually, in the scriptures, there'll be shortly after that thing you don't understand, the word because or the word for explaining it to you. And right here, uh, we have this great uh, example of that. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why does glory belong to our God? Because his judgments are righteous and true. For, now here's an example of that. He has judged the great harlot and he avenged the blood of his bond servants. And so we have this kind of cool little section here where it explains to us that the judgments of God are righteous and true. And this is one of my pet peeves. It drives me crazy when people try to separate the Old Testament mean God from the New Testament nice God. And they kind of get into this idea like, well, you know, if God's all loving. He can't be mean to people. He can't be, uh, he can't be out there judging and he can't be out there bringing vengeance on people. That's not love. Now, I'm going to tell you what love is. Love is when you bring justice into unjust situations. That's love. That's what God models for us. That's who he is. If he allowed people to be treated poorly and never brought justice, that would be unloving. And so in this moment, when he's bringing justice, and I know it's, it's hard for us to see that sometimes justice doesn't come to the end. We would like justice right now for everyone except ourselves, right? We, I, want, I want my justice later. I want mine put off. Uh, I, I want grace. I want mercy. But when justice comes here at the end, understand this. It's true justice, and it's another example of God's love for us. He's bringing his justice to those who have been mistreated. In this case, it specifically says uh, the blood of his bondservants are on the hands of this system or this woman, Babylon. And so we have this situation here where they're worshiping him because of this. And so again in verse 3, that second hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. They're, they're celebrating the overthrow of this injustice that's going on here. Uh, now, we have this interesting thing that happens in verse 4, and I have to kind of backtrack on some things that I've said in the past. Uh, but now we have these familiar fellas, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, falling down to worship God in this moment. And they're going to shout out hallelujah. And so this brings to me a question that I thought I answered way earlier in this book, but now I'm not so sure that my answer was right. Previously, in chapter 4 and 5 and some of these other places, when I saw the 24 elders, I said, well, they represent all the believers in heaven. They're a representation of that. And there's reasons to believe that. They're, the way that they look, the way that they act, all of those things match up to what we see the believers doing. But then you contrast that to this group right here that is now the great multitude in heaven. And so now it's possible that they might actually represent something else. So I'm going to give you just a, a little uh, secret information Pastors don't know everything. And the most annoying ones are the ones who think they do, right? And I sometimes get a little offended by that because, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to pastor friends, they talk with such confidence like they know it all. Like they've got it all figured out and they come to these very complex issues and they act like their understanding of it is the only one that's there. Man, if that's what it's like to be a pastor, I might as well resign now. I spend a lot of time looking at these things going, 
Oh, that's where they got that. Well, I never saw that before. Well, maybe I'm looking at you. So I kind of just go over these things over and over in my head. Uh, what I want you to get out of this is it's okay to not understand everything in Scripture. It's not okay to not seek to understand the things in Scripture. So I don't want you to just say, oh, that's hard to understand. I'm not going to do the work. No, I want you to do the work. But sometimes when you do the work, the answer isn't clear. Now, in a passage like this, we don't want to get distracted by the piece that isn't clear and miss the points that are clear. And that is that our God judges righteously and true. And at the end of time, when the final judgments start happening, we will celebrate those judgments because they'll actually be judgments on our behalf. And so we're going to be celebrating with God in heaven. And so we have now these four hallelujahs. Uh, what I didn't tell you is I cut the fourth hallelujah in half, uh, maybe more in like thirds. So that hallelujah that starts there in the middle of verse 6 continues on into verse 7. Uh, but I cut that in half to kind of get that to that next point there, get all the hallelujahs in, but it's separating out from that next point on the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're going to read this here where it says, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. But then we'll move into this next section that we know of as the marriage supper of the Lamb. But again, the question I would ask you is, what do you know about the marriage supper of the Lamb? And where did you get that information? Because I think we have kind of this, this big view of what the marriage supper of the Lamb is, but we don't always know where we got it. Uh, and so we, we sometimes repeat things that we've heard, but we can't actually remember how we got to that conclusion. Uh, so I'm going to let Sheila kind of set the tone before I even read any of this. Uh, Sheila, prior to this, when you thought of the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, what did you think about it? Um, I imagined it as kind of a reunion, I think, with Jesus. Um, just us finally being in his presence, rejoicing and having a party and lots of food. Having a party Good food. and lots yeah. of food. Those two things yeah. always go together. But there's, I mean, that's, that's an accurate view of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We see it as this big celebration in heaven. Uh, but the interesting thing to me in all of this is this is the only place it's specifically spoken of. I don't see it specifically mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Now, you can draw some conclusions from some other places, but it's, it's weird to me that we get so excited about this thing uh, that literally covers three verses. But the reason we get excited about it is not how much it's talked about, but how amazing it is. Uh, so let's listen to this final hallelujah and then read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah, this is the end of verse 6. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So that's really all we have about the marriage supper of the Lamb in Scripture. It's this moment where the people who are in heaven, all the believers, that's us, where we're recognizing the, the reign of Jesus Christ, and it all comes together in this moment where we have this huge feast in heaven, this celebration uh, that mirrors a marriage celebration. So if you want to think of it in that sense, uh, when you go to a wedding, there's a lot of symbol symbolic things in the wedding service that are designed to draw your attention to this. 
For instance, the reception, right? The whole idea of the reception, that same type of feeling, not for the people that have to organize it, that's a horrible feeling, but for the people who just showed up to a wedding and they get all the food and they have a party and the dancing, all that stuff, that's a, a miniature glimpse of what heaven will be like for us. There's going to be this moment of celebration. Uh, the other thing that draws actually out of the marriage ceremony uh, where it describes the bride here as being uh, clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. Uh, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And that's the same picture in a wedding ceremony where the, the bride comes down and she's dressed in white and it's intended to, to represent the righteousness, the purity of the bride in these things. Uh, for us, it represents the righteousness of the believers, of the saints. And so it's this kind of cool picture that relates to uh, a more Hebrew version of a wedding. And so just to simplify the Hebrew wedding down as much as I can, uh, they would have a betrothal, which would be very similar to us as an engagement, and that would go on for about a year. Uh, and then at the end of that uh, betrothal period, at the end of the year, uh, they would have a wedding that would start with the bride being kidnapped. And nobody calls the cops because they know it's happening. And she's stolen away from her house, and she's going to be brought to the wedding feast. And that's their ceremony, the big party, that wedding feast. And so Jesus is saying the same thing, uh, but what we see in Scripture is this is how he views the church. This is how he views his people. He views his people as his bride. And so it's, it's kind of this, uh, intended to be this beautiful celebration, this beautiful scene in the same way that we recognize a wedding feast like that. And so, uh, of course, every time you have a wedding, there has to be one guy that makes it awkward. And in this case, it's John. And so we have <laughs> kind of this amazing moment and John begins to worship the wrong guy right in the middle of it. And so here you see John, it says in verse 10, he fell at his feet to worship him. And the him here is the guy that's just explaining it all to him. Uh, and that guy goes, don't do that. Worship God. I'm just, a, I'm just another, uh, another fellow a participant in the things of God. And so whoever this person is, it's not really described here, potentially an angel. Uh, he's just another fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Instead, we're supposed to worship God, which again, just a reminder for us, all that is going on in heaven is focused on worshiping God. That's the key of all of that. So there's this huge party celebrating the reign of Jesus Christ, celebrating the bringing together of Jesus and his church celebrating and worshiping God. And that's that marriage supper of the Lamb that we look forward to, by the way. That, that's something we look forward to. So uh, now we're going to just take a, a brief moment here uh, to talk about uh, the rapture of the church and how this relates to the book of Revelation. Uh, so I've previously told you and kind of maintained this throughout my life as a believer uh, that I believe the church is raptured in Revelation chapter 4. And that's called the pre-tribulation rapture. That before any of this bad stuff starts happening on earth, we're brought up into heaven and we're watching the show from above. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're upstairs watching what's going on down below. There are other views on that, though. And so as we've been working our way through the book, I've been uh, trying to be uh, faithful to point those out. So Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, uh, that is what we would call the pre-wrath rapture of the church. And so those people would be similar to us in that they believe it's uh, they wouldn't say pre-tribulation, though. They would, they would just take it a little bit further and say pre-wrath. That we're going to go through some tribulation, but what we won't go through is the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. Because that's not directed at us. So when that first bit of the wrath of God, oh look, there goes a moth. Speaking of the wrath of God. Um, <laughs> that at that point would be the, the rapture of the church. 
Uh, there's another group called the mid-trib people, and they would look at uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, and, and all of these people have reasons for why they believe what they believe, right? And so they would say, well, we're told it's at the last trumpet, and so they take the seven trumpets. When that seventh trumpet is blown, mid-trib people believe that they're going to, uh, the church will be raptured at that point. Uh, and then here is what we would call the post-tribulation rapture of the church, uh, that they believe, and I call it kind of the up-down theology, they believe that you're going to be raptured up to heaven right before the second coming, and then you'll come swooping right back down with him. So you're up, and then you're right back down. Uh, and they believe that that fits in here. Uh, and so uh, the, the key to this, though, this is the thing for me. Uh, number one, all four of those views have one thing in common. They're waiting for Jesus Christ to come get his bride. All four of them are. And so we're going to have some disagreement about when those things happen, but hey, we can talk about it on the way up, right? But all four of them have their hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, number two is at this point from the book of Revelation, everybody agrees we've been raptured, that believes in the rapture of the church, right? So we're all in agreement here at this point. We finally come to some less contentious things, uh, and we find ourselves now coming to what's known as the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, and so... Um, I'm going to ask Dave, as I read through this kind of longer section here, uh, your question is going to be, what is the purpose of the second coming of Jesus Christ, okay? So here we go, and you guys can try to find the answers for these things yourselves. You don't have to wait for Dave to answer. <laughs> Verse 11, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is it. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's arriving on his horse. He's going to do battle uh, with the beast and the ten kings that have joined with the beast at the end of the tribulation. And this, by the way, is that end of that seven-year tribulation period. And so when we see the second coming of Jesus Christ, Dave, what is the purpose that it gives us here for the second coming of Jesus? I think that one's in verse 11 where he says, And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So I think his purpose is to judge and wage war. Yeah, he's coming to bring judgment and to wage war against those who have, have, gained, have gathered together to wage war against him. Uh, and I like to make that, that separation from the rapture. Because some people get those two things confused and think that they're the same thing. This is the separation for me. The rapture was going to get his bride the second coming is going to get his enemies. You see the difference there? There's a big difference between those two concepts. And so that's what's going to happen here. Now, the description of Jesus uh, is an interesting description that we have here. First of all, uh, heaven is going to be opened up, which happens a couple times in the book of Revelation, where people actually get a see into heaven. It's kind of, I mean, just imagine the skies opening up and you get a see into heaven. Uh, but then in this moment, it says, 
that he comes riding out on a white horse, and his name at that point is Faithful and True, and he's going to come and he's going he's to wage war, and behind him, there's going to be all the saints, his army, riding on white horses, something that we celebrate in my house because my wife loves horses, and now we know that there will be horseback riding in heaven. And so we're pretty excited about seeing that. I don't know if all dogs go to heaven, but all horses apparently do. And, and they, they, well, all white horses do, I guess. I, is what it, I could be wrong. Maybe they, uh, like us, when we get our robe, maybe they're wearing robes. They're glorified bodies. But they're glorified horses uh, that are coming down out of heaven, following with Jesus Christ to wage war on the earth. And so we have this... Uh, idea going on. I'm sure you don't have to take care of horse stables in heaven, though. Some, something else is going to deal with that issue. But anyway, <laughs> when Jesus comes out of heaven to the earth, it says his eyes are a flame of fire. And so it's just this description of him. And on his head are many diadems. So there's these crowns there with many jewels on it. Uh, and he has a name written on him which no one knows himself, although the secret's about to be revealed. They're going to give us some more of the names of Jesus here. So he's got a name written on him. Uh, and then later you'll also see uh, that that name is written actually on his thigh in verse 16. And it's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So if you didn't know that you had a tattooed Savior, now you do, right? So Jesus has his name written on him. And you're going to have a little bit more mercy when your kids come home from school and they found the Sharpie at school and they've kind of scribbled on their arms. You're like, oh. Well, I guess Jesus did it. Um, but I'm guessing the, the purposefulness is not the same. Uh, now, I didn't want to get into a whole thing on tattoos because I know there are a lot of opinions on that. Um, but why not, right? What else were we going to do this morning? So here I go. Um, so I, I look at tattoos the way I look at pretty much anything. If you're doing it for the glory of God, great. If you're doing it for the glory of yourself, you're in sin. That's just the way it is. I don't think there is anything in Scripture uh, that says we can't get tattoos. There's, I think, a misunderstanding of something in the book of uh, Leviticus where it talks about getting tattoos for the dead. Well, it doesn't say tattoos, but getting the marks for the dead. And that's literally uh, a, a cultic practice designed to worship false gods uh, in honor of your dead people. That's a different thing than what we're seeing. Uh, so, so my question is, if, if you're going to get a tattoo, are you getting it for the glory of God or are you getting it for the glory of yourself? I don't have any tattoos because I'm also a wimp. Like to me, it just seems like, do I want to sit still for an hour and have somebody poke me with a needle? No. Same reason I don't have piercings. Same reason I don't exercise. All of those things <laughs> sound, sound miserable to me. <laughs> just not going to do it. Um, sorry. Are we still in Revelation? Let me see here. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 is where I find myself in trouble today. Um, but this, again, this description of Jesus with the flaming eyes and the crown, uh, it gets even a little bit more awkward than that, than the tattoos. You, you now see that in verse 13, he's clothed in a robe, but this robe is dipped in blood. And so everybody else dressed in white, he's dressed in red, and he's dripped in blood, it says. And so uh, you have kind of this... This picture of him coming down, again, the armies are with him, but out of his mouth, there's a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus here, and he's going to use that to strike down the nations, and then from this point forward, he's going to rule 
them with a rod of iron. So it talks about him treading the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. So he's, he's coming to do war with the armies of the earth. He's coming to bring the wrath of God. That's his purpose in all of this. And again, we see several names for him here. In verse 11, he's faithful and true. In verse 13, he's the word of God, which I think is a great description. Uh, what I love about how he's called the word of God here, John is writing this at the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the story of Jesus, right? John starts his gospel, John chapter 1, by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. And so here is Jesus, the word of God, who is God, book ending the beginning and the end of the story of the life of Jesus Christ. And so pretty uh, powerful there. And then finally, in verse 16, that other description of him, his name written is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which means if there's a bazillion kings in the world or in the universe, he's the king of them all. And all the lords or all the bosses out there who think they're in charge, they have a lord over them. Jesus Christ is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He's in charge in the end. So we uh, want to finish this up now, and we're going to get to see this kind of battle here that's going to happen on earth. Uh, it, it's, it's not as exciting as you would think it is. The battle is actually pretty quick. Uh, so let's look at this in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out, Ouch, ouch, it's hot. I'm standing on the sun. Yeah, you would. <laughs> I'll start over. <laughs> you shouldn't say everything that comes to your brain, is what I've heard. <laughs> Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, a symbol for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So now we're going to have not the marriage supper of the lamb. This is the great supper of the birds. This is a different dinner entirely. Uh, and essentially the concept here is all the enemies of God, with the exception of Satan, that's the next chapter, are going to be destroyed or cast into hell at this moment. And so we see as his army comes down from heaven, the beast has an army assembled with him as well. We saw that in uh, Revelation chapter 16, that the beast and these 10 kings put together an army so that they could wage war against Jesus Christ. 
And so we have this moment where this battle is going to actually happen. And so in preparation for that, uh, the birds are told, get ready, you're about to eat. And so if you just think about all those scavenger birds out there, wherever they see the dead, that's where they gather. Well, this is where the birds of the earth are going to gather because all of these people are going to be put to death in this moment. And so here comes Jesus. He's riding on his horse. The beast and all his armies are ready to make battle with him. And Jesus just grabs the beast and the false prophet and just throws him right into hell. And he takes that sword in his mouth and he just whoosh, wipes the people out, the enemies of God. And again, people look at this and say, oh, well, that just doesn't sound like any God I would worship. To which I would say, I wouldn't want to worship any God who is incapable of bringing justice into unjust situations. This is the God we worship. Now look, this is a difficult thing. You don't want to end the chapter on people dying, right? Like you don't want to come to the end of a chapter and, and the last things that you read are the rest were killed with a sword and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Amen, see you next Sunday, right? <laughs> That's just not how you want to end. And so I want to go back to kind of the purpose of this book, both in Revelation chapter 1, and we'll see this also at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22. We're told that this book was written to be a blessing for us. So as you're reading through Revelation chapter 19, think about this for a minute. The things that we've seen, what are the blessings for those of us who believe in this chapter? And so we kind of work our way through that, and we see some of these blessings. First of all, we see the overthrow of Babylon by a just... God. That's a powerful thing that we see here. The overthrow by a true and righteous God who judges in truth and righteousness. And we understand that those judgments are on our behalf. The behalf of all believers throughout all history. It's a powerful thing for us to remember. We are blessed by this. We're blessed by the worship that happens in heaven. I think that's a powerful thing uh, for us to connect uh, one of the more strange things that I'm blessed with in this book, uh, I think a lot of us have kind of a difficult concept, uh, difficult, it's difficult for us to process the concept of heaven because kind of how we envision it is kind of cartoon-esque, like we're all going to be sitting on clouds, playing harps, singing songs to Jesus. And I think to myself, I don't really like singing all that much, and I certainly, you know, the rest of eternity sounds like a long time. And it kind of sounds boring, right? Well, I think we miss the bigger picture. We're not just singing in heaven and worshiping God, although we will do that. And I think we're going to enjoy every second of that for eternity. But we're also feasting in heaven. How many of you are glad to know that we're going to eat in heaven? I think about that almost every time I eat. Like, this is just a little bit of heaven today. Unless we're eating fish, and then I don't get as excited. But fish sticks, I'm okay with, but that's not really fish. That's the hot dog of the sea is what my wife calls it. But um, I'm glad we're going to be feasting in heaven. We're apparently going to be riding horses in heaven. When you think about heaven, this is the thing that I want us to think about. Some people think of the heaven as an eternal worship service, and they think of like this, and we're all sitting in our seats, and we're all just for, for eternity just looking at Jesus and singing. No, it's called eternal life. And it's a life beyond anything we've experienced. 
It's a life undescribable that all throughout this we're going to find things that we do in heaven as we go through the scriptures. Heaven is eternal life, but it's a type of life you want to live. It has all the joys, but none of the destructive nature of sin. It's eternal life in heaven. It's one of those great blessings. And then again, the, the final blessing here is for me to, to see the overthrow of the beast. You know, as Christians, the beast gets a, a lot more press than he deserves. Uh, we spend a lot of time focusing on the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet. We get kind of all worried. Is this guy the beast? Is that guy the beast? Is this guy the beast? Oh my goodness, are we going to be there for the beast? Well, here's what I know about the beast. Number one, he's limited in power. He cannot overcome Jesus Christ. Number two, he's limited in time. He gets seven years. Seven years. And then he's cast into hell. We worship the God who overthrows the beast. And we get to be with him for all eternity. You know what's great about the marriage supper of the Lamb? The Lamb is there with us so powerful when we think about the blessings of this book. I'll tell you, I, I don't think I say it enough. I don't think I uh, do this enough. But every time we open the scriptures, there's a new reminder why we want to be believers in Jesus Christ. But for us as Christians, it brings comfort. It brings encouragement. It gives us the ability to kind of go forward in our faith. For those that are unbelievers, if you're, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've not followed him, or you're watching online and you haven't followed Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? I mean, seriously. It's time to renegotiate your contract with God, right? Because under the current agreement, at the end of time, you will be judged and you'll spend eternity in the lake of fire. Demonstrated for us here. It's time to switch teams. It's time to join the team of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 my favorite verse, I use it all the time. I repeat it so that you'll learn to repeat it so someday you can do what somebody else did in this church. A gal came in and said, you're gonna believe it, Pastor Sean. I was sitting with my uh, relative that was dying and she said, tell me about Jesus. And I went, Romans 10, 9, because she had heard it so many times and that's what I want for you guys. So I'm just gonna keep repeating Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, which by the way, Lord means he's the boss. You confess with your mouth that he's in charge of your life now and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He's called the first fruits from the dead. In other words, the same God who has the power to resurrect Jesus Christ from the dead has promised to resurrect us from the dead to eternal life. You will be saved. Saved from what? A just punishment for your sins. And there are people who are going to try to, to argue with you. Well, I don't see how eternity in hell is a just punishment. You've rejected an eternal God. The only punishment that is just is an eternal punishment. It's time to surrender to Jesus Christ. If you want to do that, it's so simple. It's just that confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. You can do it in prayer. You can confess it to other people or you can do it on your own. If you're here, you can certainly go out to the prayer tents. If you're at home watching and you want to talk to somebody about it, shoot me an email, sean at calvarychapelcheyenne.org, S-H-A-U-N.
that that's how it sounds, not S-E-A-N, because that doesn't make sense. <laughs> the book of Revelation, filled with blessings. Let's go ahead and pray and close in worship. Heavenly Father,